Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. It's a few weeks now since we had the Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference, Live the Word, this year. We already heard uh, something from that with an episode on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, an excerpt from one of Dick Farr's Bible readings from the conference. And this week, I want to bring you a podcast based around one of the seminars that we had. Uh, so the conference uh, consisted of Bible readings from Dick. Uh, we had three main conference sessions from Tim Ward. Tim, who's a lecturer in homiletics at Oak Hill College, and uh, he gave us three sessions on the theological interpretation of scripture, uh, what it is and what it isn't and why it's helpful and uh, why some versions of it exist that exist are not that helpful, but actually what could be useful about it. They were really great uh, talks, really stimulating, really interesting. I'm not sure how I could condense those into a useful 20 to 25 minutes of the podcast. So uh, those talks will be available on the Church Society website. You can listen to them at your leisure. Um, But what we are going to hear from this week and next week is a couple of the seminars that we had. One of the really great things about the Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference is that there is always built into the programme plenty of time to reflect on and apply and pray about the things which we're learning. And one of the ways that happens is in the seminar sessions, which are interactive. So although I'm giving you some excerpts here uh, from what was said at the seminar, there are quite long sections of it where obviously it's just people talking in their small groups or question and answer from the front, which don't really work uh, as part of the recording. But what I'm going to do, I think, is as we go through, uh, give you some of the excerpts uh, of the teaching that we had. And maybe just uh, you can take some time to pause and think about your own answers to some of the questions uh, that were put to us. So this is the second of the three seminars that we had. This is James Hughes uh, speaking to us about discipleship. He began the seminar with a a sort of open to the floor. uh, What is discipleship? What do we think it's about? Um, I'm not including that because you can't really hear it on the recording. But we come in uh, where James is telling us what the definition of discipleship that he is working with. I'm taking the goal of discipleship as spiritual maturity. That word maturity did get mentioned. Um, I think a lot of those other words, I'm not sure where prosopanicity comes in, but most of the other words are probably uh, tending in that direction. And there's various places you can go in the New Testament. I obviously naturally tend to go to Paul's letters. uh, And here I've just gone to a little bit of 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, I won't read all the way to chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, But just starting at verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we could keep reading that section 
uh, of 1 Corinthians through chapter 2 into chapter 3, all the way through chapter 3, uh, really. Uh, in, it's one of the emphasis that you read in the letter, isn't it? The, the, the way in which Paul wants the Corinthians to rethink their spirituality uh, and to aim for genuine maturity uh, rather than the maturity that they think they have. Um, so there's a contrast, isn't there, between the mature and the immature. That's one of the things that works uh, through the latter. Maturity is the goal. True maturity, though, uh, not the maturity they think they have. Uh, there's a big emphasis on uh, the spiritual in the spirit, but again, not necessarily spiritual uh, in the way the Corinthians were reading it. Um, as we go through, there's an emphasis on holiness. We might think of that 1 Corinthians 3 passage, 16 to 17, uh, about the, the body, the temple, uh, and the importance of holiness. Many other passages in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 and 6 in particular uh, relating to that. Uh, and, of course, uh, we've got that emphasis. We've already seen it in verse uh, 8 about the crucified Lord. There is a Christ-likeness uh, about uh, what it means to be mature, a servant-heartedness, all the stuff we read in chapters 8 to 10 uh, about Paul's example of how to live. So that's the kind of area we're talking about, isn't it? I, I, I don't think I'm saying anything you don't know. Uh, we're talking about being mature, being in the spirit, being holy, being Christ-like. All those things that we've already said, following Jesus and those things like humility, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, will come in there. So that's sort of baseline. That's the goal, uh, maturity. So then you say, okay, well, how does discipleship work? Here's some ideas, and I'll stop at the end of these five, and you can tell me if you think I've missed any uh, significant ones. The first thing to say, of course, is it's a working out as God works in. I won't read these passages, but you know them. It's Philippians 2, 12 to 13. This is all about God being at work in us and yet us working out uh, our salvation. That, that emphasis uh, needs to be carefully delineated, doesn't it, what we mean exactly by that. Uh, but we recognise, first of all, don't we, that this is not a process that we uh, accomplish in and of ourselves, uh, but it is something that God is doing uh, in us. We also, of course, know that discipleship is a corporate process. That is, it's uh, something that we do together. It's something that we do uh, in and through the church. That Ephesians 4 passage is an obvious one uh, to go to. Again, the emphasis on uh, Christ's work in us, uh, but also the emphasis on the gifts being given uh, for the body of Christ to be built into maturity, and maturity being seen there uh, in being able to stand against false teaching uh, and being able to stand together. And that's probably the passage I would go to most when I was wanting to try, when I would be wanting to try and not discourage people from reading their Bible on their own, but discouraging people from thinking that reading their Bible on their own was all they ever really needed to do. Um, corporate process. This is very similar, but I think it's worth saying. It's a familial process. Um, in the New Testament, discipleship is very often a process of re-socialisation um, because it involves coming out of one set of beliefs, standards, understandings, relationships and coming into a new one. So I just put a little bit of 1 Thessalonians there, where, yeah, 2, 1 to 16, where Paul is talking uh, about his conduct and his behaviour among the Thessalonians, and where I think one of the big emphases in the first three chapters of that letter is Paul saying to them, look, this is how I was among you, and this is all about helping you understand what it means now to live differently, and actually what's probably in Thessalonica uh, quite a delicate uh, small-scale Christian situation in the midst of a, a, an opposed pagan world. That you're part of a new community now, a new family, and that for many of them meant leaving behind 
family times from before. I guess probably the, the uh, most obvious application of that, or the, the most obvious application, but not the only one in our day, would be uh, what will happen uh, when a Muslim converts to Christ. That that will actually involve the severing of family ties, whether the person who severs, it's not necessarily the person converting who seeks, seeks that severance, but that can involve being left behind by the family, and therefore discipleship becomes part of literally finding new brothers and sisters, new family members, a new support network. Now I suspect that's probably one of the areas we've not thought about quite so much, given we're still at the back end of Christendom in the West, but I think that's something we need to think about uh, a little bit more. And um, One word that didn't come up, not specifically, although I think it's there uh, implicitly, is imitation. Imitation is arguably one of the key means that the early church uses to disciple anybody. Certainly Paul is unapologetic in saying to people, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why does he write what he writes to the Thessalonians in the way that he does? Because he wants them to imitate him. Uh, we get the same kind of thing uh, in 1 Corinthians. So a process of imitation, I think that's key. Um, and then another one for us, finally, uh, it's a process of growing into holiness. So uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, uh, the Corinthians are described. Um, it might feel sometimes as you read the letter somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think it is. Um, they're described as a, ho- as a holy people. Um, and then the rest of the letter really is about telling them how they are to live as the holy people that they already are uh, and therefore should be. So I think that's what discipleship looks like uh, in the New Testament. If it is about growing into holiness, if it is about doing the works that God has prepared for us to do, if it is about being uh, led by the Spirit and, 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 and the Spirit being at work within us, how does that actually work? Um, I'd argue that the New Testament emphasis on holiness... Um, means that people do actually need to know what to do and what not to do. And I think that's probably a a weakness in the contemporary church. That actually we're not perhaps as good as previous generations, and you know I would conclude myself within this, at being clear with people on what you are allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Some of that's because we're fearful, I think, of being of the kind of... um, uh, you know, fundamentalist sort of ghetto mentality that we see in the past. But I don't think that excuses us from actually telling people what is right and what's wrong. And I'm not sure we're strong on that as we might be. And I think that partly relates to the previous one, if we're not quite sure what the role of the law is and what we are supposed to do. And if we think that perhaps people are supposed to just work it out for themselves and some kind of idea of the law of the Christ, that might lead us in that direction. Um, the whole corporate and familial thing, um, that's time-consuming, isn't it? Doing stuff together always takes more time than doing it on your own. Um, Taking responsibility for people in a way that's more than just welcoming them to church on a Sunday is time-consuming and very quickly becomes something, if it isn't already, that requires the engagement of the whole body of Christ, which is then, of course, time-consuming as well. Um, And therefore, this is is just more effort than a a pattern whereby you, you sort of you meet people Sunday by Sunday and you deal with their felt needs periodically. Um, And then the final one, imitation. Here's another thought. I look around sometimes and 
I wonder whether we've got in our churches, yours might be a lot better than mine, um, and you might be a lot better than me, but whether we've got imitable models. Who am I going to tell people to look to? And who am I going to look to, to, to actually get, you know, when I think back to my own process of discipleship, I looked up to others. Um, I did it in a particular way, as some of you know, but I did look up to others, um, and I learned from them. And I think, well, who am I going to get people to learn from sometimes? That's that generation of imitable models, that, um, how do we do that? So, just with those thoughts, there's your question. In addition to the regular preaching of the word, what then should we be doing so that's a great question, uh, maybe just to spend a few minutes thinking about. In your church, how does that work? Other than uh, the preaching from the pulpit on a Sunday, how else does discipleship happen within your church family? What are you involved in? How are you being discipled? Are there people that you are looking to as models you can imitate? Are you a model for other people to imitate? What does discipleship involve? And perhaps are there obvious gaps? Are there ways in which you could be doing more? Uh, things which could be done differently in your church? But as James uh, goes on to explain in this next section, discipleship certainly does include teaching. The other side I want to argue is that when the New Testament talks about discipleship, there's, there's a lot of content that is, there's a lot of stuff that you're supposed to do and a lot of stuff that you're not supposed to do. Okay, So let me give you an example of that. This is just Ephesians 4, 17 uh, to 6, 9. I'm not going to go through it. You'll have to, Well, you can have it open if you want and see if you can follow uh, where I'm going. Um, so I, I would say, you know, this is the discipleship section of Ephesians, isn't it? This is the section where we say, okay, Paul has said in the first three chapters uh, what God has done and now this is about our response You've gone through 4, 1 to 16, so you start off a little bit in verse 1, but then you get the other bits, and you come back to it in verse 17. Um, you get the stuff about putting off and putting on. So there's, there's an intentionality. This might come back a little bit to the renewing of mind stuff we talked about before. That you, you that There's a deliberation about, uh, you know, you choose your clothes. Well, most people choose their clothes uh, in the morning and what, what they put on, uh, and that there's a deliberateness about that. Um, and then... We then go through an application of the 6th, 8th and ninth commandments, you know which those are, um, in the local community. Um, so stuff about uh, anger, lying, uh, and false witness, gossip, all that kind of stuff. Then there's a call to imitation, unusual in the New Testament because it's a call to imitate God, um, but you know, very similar to the other calls. Um, then we go through the 7th commandment, that's sexual morality. Um, you can see where I'm going with this. Then we talk about acceptable worship which I take through the first three commandments. Um, and then we talk about the transformative impact of reverence for Christ on all human relationships. That's the, uh, that's the stuff about uh, husbands and wives, fathers, children, um, and slaves and masters, which I take to be an application of the fifth commandment. I couldn't find the fourth commandment in there, and because I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a good conservative evangelical, so I didn't import it from anywhere else. Um, but please, if someone could find it for me, that would be great. Um, but it's interesting. Look, I'm looking at that through a particular lens. But I just, as I was sort of preparing for this, I just did notice that actually that's interesting, isn't it? You, you, it's not everything about the Ten Commandments in there, and it's not every application of the, of the not every element of every commandment is there. But nevertheless, there is a, a pattern there which takes us back to what I say would still argue is a foundational, uh, a foundational set of. Uh, of commands about how to live as God's people in response to his uh, saving work. 
So that's a, I, that's, that's a reasonable New Testament pattern. There's other places we could go. There's, of course, a pattern from church history, a pattern of catechesis. Catechesis is basically about teaching people the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Um, that's been a practice through the ages, significantly revived by the Reformers. Um, it underpins most, if not all, of the um, Reformed Confessions, um, so, so it certainly underpins the one I'm going to look at very briefly, which is the Anglican Catechism. Um, it, it, uh, it certainly underpins Heidelberg, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious in the Westminster Confession as well. Um, probably can say that without contradiction. He's not here, is he? Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, this is what Catechism is. And I would argue, actually, this is something that we've lost, and I think something we've lost to our cost, to be honest. Um, let me let me uh, read you what we're supposed to do. The curate of every parish shall diligently upon Sundays and holy days, after the second lesson at evening prayer, openly in the church instruct and examine so many children of his parish sent unto him as he shall think convenient in some part of this catechism. And all fathers, mothers, masters and dames shall cause their children, servants and apprentices, which have not learnt their catechism, to come to the church at the time appointed and obediently to hear and be ordered by the curate until such time as they have learned all that, that, that is here appointed for them to learn. So soon as children have come to a competent age and can say in their mother tongue the creed, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments, and also can answer to the other questions of this short catechism, they shall be brought to the bishop and everyone shall have a godfather or a godmother as a witness of their confirmation. And whence, whensoever the bishop shall give knowledge for children to be brought unto him for their confirmation, the curate of every parish shall either bring or send in writing with his hand subscribed thereunto the names of all such persons within his parish as he shall think fit to be presented to the bishop to be confirmed, and if the bishop approve of them, he shall confirm them in the manner following. The manner following obviously being the confirmation service, which then follows uh, this, uh, this is later on in the Book of Common Prayer. I think the structure is fabulous. There are five sections. We, we, and we start with our identity in Christ. We'll come on to that in a minute. We then go through the Apostles' Creed. We then go through the Ten Commandments. We then go through the Lord's Prayer. And then, and obviously this is particularly relevant to confirmation, which is what the Catechism is designed for, we then have to understand what the sacraments are. So questions 15 to 26 deal with that. Yeah, fine. That's when you need to really understand what your baptism was and what it is you're going to do when you take the Lord's Supper. There's obviously a sort of 16th, 17th century context to that as well. But the thing I like about the Anglican Catechism, it's generally a little bit shorter and simpler than the others. And the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed are really obvious in it. They're really forefront and centre. They're not hidden in the way that they are perhaps um, in some of the other catechisms, which understandably want to sort of um, want to... Um, shorten the questions and because the, some of the answers are long. So here's, here's the catechism. Here's the first five questions. Um, I was doing this with my lot and I said, look, you know the answer to question one. Well, however you're doing on the catechism, you already have learnt one quarter of it. What is my name? <laughs> uh, not, not one quarter, one, uh, four percent of it. My name is, okay? Who gave you this name? My parents and godparents and my baptism. Through baptism I was made a member of Christ, a child of God and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. So this is all about our identity in Christ, isn't it? Uh, what did your parents and godparents do? Affirm their allegiance to Christ. And then here's a lovely question, question four. What does following Christ involve? So I was doing this. I did a confirmation course 
last time I was doing this. And I spent quite a lot of time just teasing out question four. Because I think it's a really good little description, all right, the Ang languages of, of old, of following Christ. I said to them, look, this needs to be you if you want to be confirmed. This needs to be how you identify yourself. <coughs> what does following Christ involve? It involves three things, renouncing the devil and all his works, the empty show and false values of the world, the sinful desires of the flesh, believing all that the Bible teaches about the articles of Christian faith, and thirdly, keeping God's holy will and commandments all the days of my life. And I guess of those, in our present context, it's probably the third one that's the most controversial and probably the most uncomfortably put. Because I'd probably say something like, and thirdly, do your best to live as God wants you to live. And the reason I'd want to put it like that is because I'd not want people to feel that when they failed, they were beyond repentance and forgiveness. But I might imply, might I, that it's actually not that important. This part, I think this is one of the reasons why old language and old ways of doing things and reflecting on how it's been done in the past is helpful too, is just because it challenges us, the way, challenges us about the way in which we express ourselves now, which has been benefits now of course uh, but also challenges um, and of course question five does go together with question four doesn't it quite clearly most certainly do you think as i bound to do these things most certainly with the lord as my helper i heartily thank god our heavenly father that he has called me to the state of salvation through jesus christ our savior and i pray that he will give me his grace to continue in that state to the end of my life so that's the introduction first five questions you then, question six says, what do you believe? And that's the point where you recite the Apostles' Creed. Um, I haven't written that out for you. You know that. What do you chiefly learn? I learned to believe in God the Father, who has made me in all the world, in God the Son, who has redeemed me and all mankind, in God the Holy Spirit, who sanctifies me and all the elect people of God. Now, that's not obviously a complete summary of the Apostles' Creed, but it's not a bad place to start um, in thinking uh, about it. Happy so far? Shall I keep going through this? So this, I just think this is helpful too, is in, in, encouraging us to think about discipleship in a way which says, look, let's make sure our folk understand what they believe. Let's make sure our folk understand um, what it is they're supposed to do. We then go through the Ten Commandments. Question eight is how many commandments are there? I will spare you the painfully long pause before somebody shouted out 10 uh, and the even longer pause that followed when James gave us the next question. What are those 10 commandments? Uh, maybe you can recite those uh, to yourself. And if not, you could go and look them up and learn them. OK, so then what do you learn? I learned two things, my duty to God and my duty to my neighbour. So obviously this is a summary of the law that comes in here. Um, uh, and then you just get these two questions which then go through, start to tease out the implications of the Ten Commandments, um, positively and negatively. And that, again, if you look at the other catechisms, that's what you get. You'll get uh, a greater teasing out of what, what am I supposed to not do? Heidelberg Catechism is good for this. What am I supposed not to do? What am I supposed to do? My duty to God is to believe in him, to fear him, and to love him with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, to worship him, to give him thanks, to put my whole trust in him, to pray to him, to honour his holy name and his word, and to serve him truly throughout my life. Not a bad summary, is it? What's your duty to your neighbour? My duty to my neighbour is to love him as myself, 
and to all as I wish would do unto me, to love, honour and care for my parents, to honour and obey the Queen and all in authority under her. And here you get a little bit of this um, expansion of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, you've got the Fifth Commandment not just being about parents, but about being, all, about, being about authority. You've got uh, the Sixth Commandment not just being about murder, but also about hatred and the sanctity of life and caring for others and all those uh, expansions which, again, you see um, in the Reformed Confessions. Again, that's not a bad summary to be teaching and working through with people. Uh, and then my favourite question of all. You are not able to do these things in your own strength, nor are you able to keep his commandments or serve him without his special grace. This you must learn at all times to call for by diligent prayer. Therefore, recite the Lord's Prayer. That's quite interesting, isn't it? That the, the Lord's Prayer then, after you've done the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer is then an acknowledgement of our dependence on God, our inability to do all the things that he calls us to do, and our prayer for his grace to work in us um, and to enable us to be the people that he's called us to be. I admit that until I went to James's seminar, I, I think I did just about know that there was an Anglican catechism, but I had certainly never looked at it or been aware uh, of its use. Uh, if that's the case for you as well, I am putting a link to the Anglican Catechism on the website uh, post, the blog post that goes with this podcast, uh, and you might want to go and, and look that up for yourself. It's interesting, isn't it, that it is those three foundational documents, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, which um, across denominations have always been the foundational documents for Christians that teach us how to live, what to believe, and how to pray. If you think, actually, I'd like to know uh, more about those documents, I'd like to think about them more, what it means for Christians to obey the Ten Commandments, some of the ways that James was mentioning there in terms of how the commandments need to be expanded in their scope, not just thinking about, for example, honouring our parents, but honouring all kinds of authority. Um, if you want to have a slightly deeper understanding, perhaps so that the next time you say the Apostles' Creed in church, you know what it is you are uh, committing yourself to. Or perhaps uh, you've always uh, known the Lord's Prayer uh, and say it regularly, but again, would like to have a, a slightly deeper understanding of what it is you are asking for. Help is at hand. Uh, last year on the Church Society website, we had our Lent uh, blog series on just those three documents, believing, living and praying. You can find all of those listed uh, on our resources page. And again, I'll put a link to that uh, on the blog post that goes with this podcast. There's a series of posts there from Legatus uh, on the Creed, from myself on the Ten Commandments and Ash Carter on the Lord's Prayer a daily series explaining uh, line by line each section, helping us to apply them, giving some questions uh, for reflection and also a short prayer. Um, so you might find that a really useful resource as well uh, if this is something that is new to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We'll be back next week and we're going to be using excerpts from uh, another of the Fellowship of Word and Spirit seminars, this time uh, from George Crowder on evangelism. Uh, and I found that equally uh, a helpful and encouraging and challenging time on the conference. And I hope you will find that too as you listen to the podcast episode. Do tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.